Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. If you have any feedback on this show or questions for previous guests, please send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. First up, Wessel's Economic Update. I'm David Wessel, Director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy, and this is my economic update. Something weird is going on. The U.S. economy is getting better, but Americans seem unconvinced by that, as we saw in the recent congressional elections. The unemployment rate is the lowest since July 2008, and even broader measures of the labor market are looking better. Yet exit polls tell us that two-thirds of the voters say the economy is either getting worse or not getting much better, which for them is a bad thing. And the Wall Street Journal NBC News poll found that two-thirds of the people are somewhat or very dissatisfied with the state of the economy. That's the same reading as in June 2013, when the economy was, by most measures, weaker. So what gives? Well, one, there's always a lag between improvements in the economy and people's perceptions of it. Just ask George H.W. Bush about that. Two, the economy is better, but still far from great. There are still, for instance, more than 7 million people working part-time who wish they could find full-time work. Three, for those who are working, most of us, raises are scarce. Employers have been fairly stingy with raises, so people aren't feeling better because their paychecks aren't going up. And fourth, I think the economy is recovering from a severe heart attack, and people are now focusing on the chronic disease, the stagnation of wages and incomes in the middle class, the widening gap between winners and losers, and most importantly, they're worried about prospects for their kids. The exit polls found that half the voters expect life for the next generation of Americans to be worse than it is for the current generation. That's more data about the future at any time since the question was first posed in exit polls in 1996, and polls that count people who didn't vote find the broader public even more pessimistic. To learn more about the Hutchins Center, visit our website at brookings.edu slash Hutchins Center. My guest today is Bill Fry, a senior fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program here at Brookings. He is an internationally regarded demographer known for his research on urban populations, migration, immigration, race, aging, demographics, and the U.S. Census. Bill is also a research professor in the Population Studies Center at the University of Michigan. Welcome to the podcast, Bill. Oh, it's great to be here, Fred. Um, let's start with some softball questions. What is a demographer? Oh, you know, I, I can fool a lot of people by telling them I'm a demographer. <laughs> they don't always quite know what it is. But, um, you know, I think now most people realize when they hear the word demographics, it's about population. It's about understanding what the makeup of the population is, how it's changing. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I first started in many, many years ago uh, in graduate school, I got trained as a sociologist, especially in demography. Hardly anybody knew what demography was back then. Uh, but what's happened since then is I think a broader part of the population came to understand why understanding and using information about different aspects of the population are so important for business, they're so important for decision making at government at all levels. Uh, and I think that really uh, what, what got this going was the baby boom. Uh, you know, everybody knew there were all these babies in the 50s and 60s. But when the babies, uh, these people started to become adults, you know, there was such a huge population. They had very different tastes. You remember, they're the Woodstock generation. And then they moved along and had huge impacts on, on all aspects of society. And I think that's when people started to understand what demographics was all about. And what originally drew you to the field and, and what keeps you interested? Well, you know, I, I started out as an undergraduate uh, in mathematics, 
And then I decided, well, I, I wanted to do something a little more than mathematics, a little more grounded. Took a couple sociology courses, and I thought, well, how can I use my mathematics in the whole this field of sociology? And demography seemed to seemed to be a pretty good fit. And and as I started to do my work over the years, I it seemed to me that demography is a good framework for not only understanding society, but different aspects of, of you know, what we do as a country, politics, uh, local planning, you know, a whole range of things. Demography is kind of interdisciplinary, and, you know, it's turned out to be a lot of fun over the years. And I've heard, I've heard you and others say, demography is destiny. What does that mean? Well, you know, it is the framework of demography to understand uh, when you have a population structure that is made up of young people who eventually get old. What you know about those young people today will tell you a lot about what the rest of those people will be like as they get older and how society will change as those people get older. So I think the generational aspect of demography is part of this demography is destiny thing. Okay. Let's talk about your new book. Uh, it's published by the Brookings Institution Press. It's titled Diversity Explosion, How New Racial Demographics Are Remaking America. What is a diversity explosion? Uh, well, diversity explosion, I, it's probably a bit overblown, <laughs> if I could use the term, the title, because I wanted people to understand how important the growing minority populations are for this country. And uh, I use that term just to, to put an exclamation point on, on this big change. Um, you know, the baby boom was a big thing in the last part of the 20th century. I think the big thing in the first half of this century will be the diversity boom that we're seeing in this country. It's the part of the population that's going to change everything. And I wanted, the people, I wanted people to understand that. So you're not just observing this phenomenon is happening. You're saying this is important and this is why we need to uh, do certain things about it. Absolutely. I mean, the, the phrase demography is destiny has never been more apt than talking about this big growth of what I call new minorities, Hispanics, Asians, multiracial populations, as well as the existing older minorities that we have in the United States for our nation's future. I can't wait to get to some of the, uh, the data that's in this book because they are fascinating. I'm going to quote from the book. I am convinced that the United States is in the midst of a pivotal period, ushering in extraordinary shifts in the nation's racial demographic makeup. If planned for properly, these demographic changes will allow the country to face the future with growth and vitality as it reinvents the classic American melting pot for a new era. So you call it a pivotal period in the racial demographic makeup. How does that compare uh, to, say, the, the end of the 19th, early 20th century when we had massive influx of immigrants in that period? And also, uh, how do we uh, plan for it properly? Well, you know, I think that you're correct. This pivotal period that we're experiencing now of demographic change has a parallel with the, with the earlier part of the 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, when we had a lot of European ethnic groups coming to the United States. They were quite different from back then what were mainstream Americans, mostly people from uh, England, Great Britain. And, and, and these people were thought of as being very different. They spoke different languages. Uh, they were thought almost as second-class citizens. Uh, they didn't immediately intermarry with other people. But a couple generations down the road, all of that changed. Uh, now then, we never thought of that as a different racial group although a lot of people thought them different enough that it might have been a different racial group. Today's uh, transformation has a lot to do with different races. And ra race is very 
you know, a touchy subject in the United States. It's, it's, a, it's something that raises people's concerns in all kinds of ways, rationally or irrationally, often irrationally. Uh, so that's important. We have this huge growth of people who are coming from other parts of the world, speak different languages. But in addition, what's happening is that our white population, uh, what we would think of as our mainstream population in the United States, is getting older and growing very slowly. So if it were not for these new minorities that we see coming in as a, resu as a result of immigration over the last couple of decades, uh, that then we would be aging much more rapidly than we already are. We would actually be facing a shrinkage of our labor force in the not-too-distant future if we wouldn't have these folks. So I just think this is a gift for us. We may not have thought about it at the time when we changed our immigration policy in 1965 or as this was kind of moving along. But, uh, you know, the idea of demography is destiny. The destiny of this country would have been very different if we wouldn't have these people here. I think this leads into this concept of majority-minority. Uh, you you uh, emphasized that in 2011 there was uh, the first majority-minority birth cohort. Uh, many cities and other communities in the U.S. are becoming majority-minority. Uh, it can be kind of a confusing term. Uh, can you discuss what that means? Well, majority-minority. <laughs> uh, it depends on who you think the majority is and who you think the minority is. Typically, if you think that the white population or the Anglo population is typically the mainstream of America and that the other groups together are all minorities, when they sort of tip over and become more than 50 percent of the population, uh, then that's kind of the clever term majority-minority. But it's not uh, anything more than that. It just talks about how the mainstream white population is, uh, is, is getting smaller. And, and, of course, in 2011 was the first time we saw from census statistics that there were more minority births than there were white births. And, and you know, that, they'll continue to bubble up the age structure this way. Uh, you've also pointed out in the book that, that whites are a minority in 22 of the nation's 100 largest metro areas. The white population is getting older, um, growing very slowly. One piece of data that fascinated me was that um, from 2000 to 2010, the total white population grew 1.2%, while the total non-white population grew 29%. What's driving uh, those two dynamics? Well, uh, the minority population, the non-white population, is, is being driven both by fertility, <laughs> okay? It's a younger population, so they have more kids. It's not like each individual person in the minority population has lots and lots of kids, but there, there's a higher percentage of those folks who are in their childbearing years. So they, they have somewhat higher fertility, Hispanics at least, uh, but, but it's not a huge fertility. Uh, and and uh, also a little bit of immigration, um, you know, 20 years ago, immigration would have been the biggest driver of the minority growth, or at least Hispanic growth in the United States. But today, actually, uh, it's natural increase, the excess of births over deaths to people already here in the United States. That's the biggest part of Hispanic growth and the biggest part of growth of all the minorities together in the United States. So that's what's going on. With the white population, it's an aging population. And again, the fertility in the aggregate is pretty low for them. Uh, but part of the reason is that there's a, a smaller percentage of white women in their childbearing years than there used to be. So as that population gets older, there's fewer births coming along. And of course, we don't have very much white immigration to the United States. Is there a time in the future where it's predicted that uh, the white population will cease to be a majority nationwide? Well, the latest uh, Census Bureau projections 
show that uh, year to be 2043. Uh, but I think the, the interesting part about this is that for different age groups, the majority minority uh, comes earlier, especially for the younger age groups. We already said that in 2011, there were more minority births and white births. Somewhere around 2018, not too far from now, the whole under 18, the whole child population uh, will be majority minority. And then around 2027, people under 30 will be majority minority. So it'll just kind of inch up. The other part of this, though, is that as the white baby boomers continue to get older, they're going to help to increase the size of the population of whites and the older population as, as those baby boomers get older. So we have, in a, in a way, a kind of growing white older population at the same time we have a, a growing minority younger population. I'm going to drop some more data from your book. Uh, you, you write that the median age of whites is 42, of Asians is just over 35, of black Americans is just over 32, of Hispanics it's just over 27, and if people who identify as two or more races is 19.9, almost 20. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that last one means that you know, it's really younger people who are having these interracial marriages and having kids. And uh, so that's really going to be part of the future, too. You know, these census projections, they do a very good job at the Census Bureau, and it's very carefully done. But nobody can really predict uh, how we're going to change racial categories in the United States. That's going to just kind of come along as we see patterns of... Uh, Who's, who's marrying in and who's marrying out, and, and what we're even going to call these racial right. categories when we have them over time. And you write about that in the book, about we possibly need new racial categories uh, in our language anyway. Yeah, they, they are constantly changing. When you look at the way the federal government and other people, kinds of agencies and community organizations classify race, that's changed uh, not only every 10 years, it's kind of a fluid thing. They have to do it bureaucratically to say, well, this is the definition now. But we will see probably before the 2020 census uh, some, some changes in this. Let me uh, throw out one other interesting fact, and it has to do with Texas because that's where I'm from. And it also has to do with uh, the, um, the, the birth of children and the population growing. You wrote that Texas leads all states in gaining the most children from 2000 to 2010 at nearly 1 million. So in that time period, uh, a million children are born in Texas. 95% of them were Hispanic. Yeah, I just want to uh, clarify that a little bit. When I say the growth of children, I mean all the people under 18, not just births. So uh, if you subtract the people who, became, who moved over 18 and add everybody who was born over that time, that gain is a million people. That's actually half the children in the United States uh, the gain of children in the United States was to Texas. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon. But most of that gain is due to Hispanics. Uh, you know, nationally, we actually had a decline of white children in the United States. There are many states, I think 46, that actually showed more white children aging past age 18 than were born. So they, they, they actually registered declines in white kids. Texas was not one of them, but most of the gain of, kid, of kids in Texas uh, was due to Hispanics. And only one state, Utah, showed a gain in the child population. Yes. Well, Utah typically has had a higher fertility rate in general than most other states. Uh, but even in Utah, uh, the Hispanic contribution to the, the growth in the child population is pretty large. It almost matched the, the white contribution. I, I want to get to uh, a lot of questions about what this all means for policy. But let's, let's also look at where this diversity explosion is happening, because that's a big part of the story. It's not just in your typical large cities, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago. Yeah. What's new about this is that uh, the fastest growth in Hispanics, for example, 
are in a whole raft of states, uh, a whole uh, whole slew of states that are in the southeastern part of the United States, some in the Midwest that uh, really hadn't had very much diversity at, at all. And this kind of happened uh, sort of in the late 90s and in the last 10 or 15 years, it continued. These are parts of the country, especially the southeast and to some degree in the Mountain West, uh, where the economy was kind of booming up until at least the recession. And, and uh, there was a real need to have workers come there at all levels, high skill levels, low skill levels. Initially, these were parts of the country that attracted mainstream Americans, middle class Americans. They would, meet, they would like, likely move away from very pricey parts of the country like the New York metropolitan area or the Los Angeles metropolitan area, sort of spread inward as it were or spread southward from the northeast. And as a, as a result of this, they created lots of jobs. And uh, as we had these new minorities coming in, initially stuck in those uh, gateway areas like Los Angeles or New York or Miami and T Dallas and Houston. But as, as these jobs started to evolve in, as I say, places in Georgia, North and South Carolina, Tennessee, um, Nebraska, um, they started to spread to these places and, and as a result made these places much more diverse and, have, and had huge growth rates. Uh, I, I talk about 145 metropolitan areas out of the 350 or so uh, that are um, really new destinations for Hispanics that have exploded in their Hispanic population. Still small sizes, but the really fast growth. And I think that's part of the way the diversity explosion is, is spreading out across the country. Can you also talk about uh, the reverse great migration and what that means? You know, another part of the picture of the changing demography in the United States is uh, a black migration back to the South. I think most people who read American history know that uh, for the first part of the 20th century, uh, there was a huge migration of blacks out of the South. It had a lot to do with the economy in the North. It had a lot to do with the, both discrimination in the South and the decline of farming that, that needed agricultural workers. Uh, and so blacks moved North to industrial cities. Um, well, you know, starting around 1970, there was a deindustrialization in Northern cities. There was also a lot of uh, bad race relations in those cities as well during the 1960s. And so the South started to boom in general during that period. But right around then, blacks started to move there. So I would say during the 70s and 80s, uh, there's been started a black migration to the South. But that was more of a push from the North. In the last 20 years, uh, it's been more of a pull. And the, and the kind of populations that have been moving to the South are college graduates, younger people, uh, new retirees. You know, trying to find new opportunities in a region that really started to come into its own. So when you look at cities like Atlanta or Dallas or Houston or Raleigh and several cities in Florida, they've really become big magnets for the African-American population. And uh, the, 2020, the 2010 census showed us that traditional northern metropolitan areas like New York and Detroit and Chicago showed absolute losses of their black populations. A total reverse of what most people thought about the black population in the earlier part of that decade. And as a result of this, you know, the South, of course, is getting Hispanics. It's getting new uh, Asian populations. But most southern states are still largely black-white states, aside from Florida or Texas. Uh, and that's still part of the culture. It's still part of the fabric. But now in the New South, as opposed to what happened when the, the African-American population left uh, 100 years ago, uh, you know, there, there's much more opportunity there. And uh, so I think this is a pattern that's going to continue. It's going to continue to help define 
what the South is as, as a region in the United States, the prospering blacks that are moving there. I, I can hardly uh, credit the fears of some people that the nation is becoming balkanized. I mean, given this diversity explosion and the dispersal across so many places, I don't see how a charge of balkanization could even be made. What is that all about? Well, the balkanization idea is something I actually helped to uh, buy into back in the mid-1990s. Uh, part of my early work in demography was heavily, heavily focused on migration analysis. And uh, back then, it was very clear that when the new immigrants started coming to places like Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Miami, and a few other places, they stayed there. Uh, they came to join their families and their friends. They had social support. They had networks that helped them find jobs and all of that. But at the very same time, the very prosperous parts of the country weren't there anymore. They, they started booming up in the interior parts, in the south, in the, in, the, uh, in the mountain west. And that's the places that attracted a lot of middle-class whites and even some African-Americans. But these new immigrant minorities tended to stay put. And when I started looking at that migration data back then, I said, you know, this is, this is going to be a, an issue. <laughs> we're going we're to see a country that's going to become balkanized. But I was wrong. Uh, I kept looking at the migration data, and uh, in the late 90s, and especially during uh, the last decade or so, has been this dispersal. And it, it's largely economically driven, and it means, of course, that these folks are accepted in these other areas, sometimes with a little bit of pushback, some, sometimes with a lot of pushback, but they're persistent, and they still go, go to these areas. And uh, in many places, they've already melded into the community, and other places that will happen. Dispersal is, is a good term, uh, and it, it strikes me today because there's some new research on our website about the dispersal of immigrants. So I'll put that in the show notes uh, as well. Let's go over to the, the implications of all of this. You talk in the book about some of the important public policy and social issues related to this change. You've talked about the minority population is arriving just in time, and you reference jobs. What are some of the big issues? Well, the just in time thing is very important, and I think public officials, community leaders, decision makers in the corporate world really need to understand this, that we're gonna, we're gonna, we would face a shortage of people who should be entering the labor force well-educated and well-prepared to, uh, to be productive, help our middle class grow, help to uh, you know, contribute to government programs like Social Security and Medicare and all the other things that we find. And in order to be able to do this, we actually absolutely have to make sure that these people are going to be able to move to do that. Unlike a lot of other countries in the world, like in Europe or Japan, where they don't have these young people ready to come in and fill those jobs when this aging population starts to retire, we have the opportunity to do this. And, uh, but I don't think the message is out there loudly and clearly enough to many decision makers to understand this. And of course, what that means is some support from the government, both the state, federal government, and even local government for school systems, uh, for social services, for ways to train people to get into certain kinds of jobs. I don't think that message is out there. And I really hope as a result of this book, people will get that message. But is it the case? and perhaps critical problem that a lot of the young people today who are going to be entering the labor force, uh, especially in the Hispanic community, have skills and education gaps that need to be addressed. Yes, it's absolutely the case. I mean, a lot of these folks who were born here in the U.S., their parents may or may not have been born in the U.S., but the parents not as well educated as a lot of the parents of, of other Americans. 
they happen to live in areas where the public schools are perhaps not as good, more highly segregated. Uh, and uh, although all the surveys that have been taken show that they really want to become part of the middle class of the United States, that they really want to become mainstream Americans, it's often difficult to have that happen. And so uh, I think this is where we really need to, to focus our attention. And, you know, reports that come out of various places that look at this very intensively show there's improvement over time. There's increasing uh, graduation from high school. There's increasing movement to community colleges, increasing movement to, to complete those colleges. But there's still a gap that's there. It's headed in the right direction, but we need to make that happen. And I think that's a real challenge. A lot of this uh, is illuminated by some of the research of our colleagues like Richard Reeves on social mobility uh, and, and others. Uh, so I'll also put that in the show notes. There's a lot of cross connections uh, that we're making here. Let's talk about the politics of it all. And also, uh, you mentioned it in the book, a cultural gener generation gap between um, the young and old, especially between older whites and what you call the white backlash. Yeah, the cultural generation gap uh, actually can be measured <laughs> by using a simple measure. Of what's the racial composition of the older part of the population? And what's the racial composition of the younger part of the population? 70% of everybody aged 50 and over, which includes all the baby boomers and then a few others, um, are white. And of that small minority population, the biggest part of that minority are African Americans. But of those people under age 35, um, you know, 40% of those folks are minorities, and the biggest minority are Hispanics. So it's the younger part of the population uh, where all this diversity is just bubbling, where you have the interracial dating and the interracial marriage, and everything is, you know, very different than the youthful experience of this older population. A lot of time these old people think, I'm one of them, by the way, <laughs> talking about old people. <laughs> but a lot of people, the older part of the population thinks, well, it's nice that we have these folks here, but they're really not our children. They're really not our grandchildren. And when, uh, you know, issues come up about how to, how to, to uh, distribute federal spending or local spending on issues for, for on, on expenditures for schools compared to uh, policies and programs for older folks, those are tough decisions when you don't have a, a very robust economy. Uh, and sometimes when you, when you look at the way uh, people make those decisions and you look at attitude surveys that are taken by Pew Research Center and other places, show that the older population is not as open to the kind of spending for these uh, social and health programs that would benefit the younger part of the population as the younger population is. And they're also a little bit uh, less open in general to the increasing diversity in the United States. Now, I hope that will change, and I think that will change. Uh, but it's part of that cultural generation gap that I, th I think will divide politics. And I think if you look at the result of the last presidential election, uh, you know, there are lots of reasons why people vote for candidates, not just racial re reasons or cultural reasons. But it is the case uh, that the, uh, the Republican candidate, Mitt Romney, got most of his support from older whites in the United States and that uh, President Obama got most of his support. Uh, for younger people, especially minorities. And I think part of that reflects a cultural generation gap. Uh, since you mentioned it, and for the record, I consider myself an older member of the Generation X uh, <laughs> cohort, whatever that means. But uh, another issue that you talked about in terms of uh, spending on social programs, whereas the older white cohort would be uh, maybe not in, as in favor of spending on programs that benefit younger people, as they retire, they're going to need more workers in the labor force to contribute to Social Security and other kinds of programs that then transfer into 
their uh, pockets, right? No, I think this is the message that does have to get out there, um, not just by scholars like myself, but people who have real power in our country, political leaders, corporate leaders, folks like that, that, that you know, people need to understand we're all in it together. And it's really, really important that this younger generation has the wherewithal to move into the middle class, to contribute to government programs, to be able to support the social security of these older folks. Uh, so I think the cultural generation gap is an important one, but I think it needs to be closed. And I think we have the wherewithal to close it. And with all the communi communication skills people have, with all the technology we have, uh, I really think that, uh, that this will happen, but it's not, it's not there yet. I'm going to go back to the politics uh, just for one moment as well. As the, um, the older, especially white population, uh, diminishes in size and the younger, predominantly Hispanic population increases in size, we still see a divergence in voting rates. Uh, whereas the older population still is far more likely to vote than the younger population of, of any group. So that tends to suggest a continued, perhaps, structural problem in the younger generation's uh, kind of political aspirations being carried through the process. Well, yes. I mean, part of this is just uh, a simple matter of demographics and how old you have to be to vote. The, the minority population, uh, particularly Hispanics, are are young enough that a, con a substantial portion of the population is not yet age 18. Uh, but statistics show that a lot of the people who are here legally and are over age 18 uh, don't register to vote uh, as much as, as, as other groups in the population. So I think that part of it is a solvable problem about people who want to engage those uh, new Americans or second-generation Americans in, in the voting process. Uh, but the, the demographic problem, we're going to have to wait until those young people turn age 18 and, and uh, put them more in sync in the voting population as they are with the, the general population. Uh, we saw in the, in the uh, 2010 election, of course, that especially among African-Americans, uh, a very high rate of turnout, uh, which had a lot to do with electing the president, I think. And uh, also for the last two presidential elections, the Hispanic and the Asian population had higher turnout than they had in earlier, earlier elections. And all of those groups favored the Democratic candidate, uh, much more so for blacks and for the other groups. And, and I think that that's also an issue, by the way. I, I don't think that we need to look at this as the Democrats have all the solutions for these people and the Republicans don't. I think I always say that, that the best demographers are politicians. <laughs> they can count the votes and they can see the population changing. And I do think that uh, you know, you'll see much more competition for the votes of Hispanics and blacks and Asians among Republicans as they see the handwriting on the wall of where, where the changing demographics are going. Well, looking uh, ahead into the future as you do, are you hopeful about the future of assimilation of immigrants into the so-called American mainstream? I am. I, I do think that uh, we're already on the way because if we looked at this country, say, back in the middle of the last century, uh, 1950 or so, uh, we didn't have very many new immigrants in the United States. I mean, I was alive back then. I was only very small, but the people that I knew in my neighborhood um, who were immigrants were, were older people who came in the early part of the 20th century. They were from Poland or Italy or someplace like that. But the kind of immigrant, the wave of immigration that we have now was nothing like that. We were, we were kind of an insular society back then. We did have a minority population, primarily the African-American population, uh, who was highly segregated, highly discriminated against. Uh, and it was, a, you know, although we had a good economy back then, we had a country that was more or less insular and race relations weren't great. 
I think that's all moved in the right direction, partly being pushed by these new minorities coming to the United States. Residential segregation, even between blacks and whites, is going down. It's still high, but it's pervasively going down all over the country. Uh, white Hispanic segregation, white Asian segregation, is already much lower than black-white segregation. It's staying a little bit still, but in places where the new minorities are going, it's lower than, the, than it had been in the places they first landed, which I think is a good sign. We have an increase in minority suburbanization in the United States. Now there are more blacks living in the suburbs and living in the cities of our bigger metropolitan areas. And uh, we see a, a rise in interracial marriages all across the board, particularly between whites and blacks, which is something that really has changed dramatically uh, from just 20 years ago, especially among young people. So I think there's this kind of openness that uh, is, is there. And, uh, you know, I, I, I chalk this up a little bit to our history as a country who, ha you know, we, we grew up as a melting pot in a way. And even though we had this kind of insular period in the middle of the last century, I think people learn in schools about this. I think their older relatives or grandparents and stories are handed down about how things became intermingled. And so I think there's this kind of tradition of being open to, to new folks. And, of course, the civil rights movement had a lot to do with changing people's attitudes about race in the United States. Uh, I will be the first to say we have not gotten close to where we would like to be in terms of income inequality, uh, inequality in all kinds of ways uh, between whites and these other racial minorities. But we have come a long way, and I think with these new minorities uh, uh, being part of it, it will push things along further. You know, when the civil rights laws were passed, minorities in the United States were only 15% of the population. The 2020 census will show minorities to be more than 40% of the population. When you have that many people here who are voters, who are running for office themselves, who are moving into positions of responsibility, that can do a lot to make big change in this country. And that's why I'm really optimistic. I think this demographic force is going to have a lot to do with uh, us being a much more open country about uh, race and, and assimilation. When, when I was a kid, uh, one of the Schoolhouse Rock episodes is the great American melting pot. And it's this great sing song about it all. But it focuses on those late 19th, early 20th century immigrants. It sounds like they need to perhaps update that uh, little cartoon song. Um, I think it's a fascinating and a very important story, uh, and you cover it so well in your book, Diversity Explosion, How New Racial Demographics Are Remaking America. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for your time and insight today. I appreciate it. It's just a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. To learn more about Bill and his work, please visit brookings.edu slash metro. And if you have any questions for Bill or any guests of the podcast, please send an email to bcp at brookings. This podcast is made possible with Zach Colzer's tremendous editing and production skills, Jessica Pavone's talented artwork, and the terrific web support offered by Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahan. Our intern is Charmaine Crutchfield. If you have any feedback for guests of the show or any input at all, send your emails to bcp at brookings.edu. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and now listen to us on Stitcher. Links to everything discussed in the podcast are on the show's webpage on brookings.edu slash bcp.